Chapter 7. The Jockey Shower Of all the stress-inducing events that made Portland so chaotic, the most traumatic experience was having to take a shower in the jockey locker room after the show. Like the unprepared kid at camp, I had forgotten shower shoes, soap dish, and just about everything I would need on the road. Horse racing wasn't in season, and it looked like everyone had literally abandoned the place after the last race. Betsy kept lookout while I showered, the nozzle, at its highest angle, pointed directly at my chest. I used a dozen towels to lay on the ground and hopscotched around like in an action movie trying not to make contact with the floor. Fran had to shower in one of those horse stalls, sidestepping manure, which put my own traumatic experience into perspective. I was in denial about traveling on the tour bus, but got over it pretty quick on the 30-hour trip to Lawrence, Kansas. Our bus had Betsy and me, Sean, Booth, the guest tattoo artists, and Naomi Fabricant. The bus consisted of a front part with a lounge, TV, and table, and toward the back were eight coffin-like berths. There was no way I was sleeping in one of the berths. I was collecting money, having meetings, and needed a door that locked. Betsy and I took the back lounge, which had banquettes, that we could use for a bed. We learned a hard lesson that first trip from Oregon to Kansas. Not only could you never poop on the bus, but if you needed to make an unscheduled stop for the bathroom, it could cost you two or more hours by the time you get back on and off the highway, especially when you're in the middle of nowhere. All the buses the entire caravan had to pull over too, because a bus on its own could break down and get stranded. A call would go out over the CBs to the other buses saying that there was an unscheduled stop and that everyone would get out and invariably someone would go missing. Betsy had to go on that first trip, and unfortunately so did one of the henna artists who had an unfortunate reaction to a corn dog, so that gave her cover. But she still had a terrible walk of shame. I don't think Betsy went to the bathroom for the rest of the tour. Neither of us slept at all that first night. I felt wired and my head was ringing, like I was coming down from an acid trip. I don't know if I had ever been so tired, or worried, or so satisfied. The next morning when I looked in the mirror, I noticed a dime-sized white patch in my stubble. Tattoo the earth and the jockey shower had turned me gray overnight. It felt like we'd been on the bus for a month by the time we hit Kansas, and we still weren't sure who was going to be on the bill. Though we figured if someone was willing to make that long trip, they were in it for the long haul. The venue in Lawrence was a small community park, and unlike the racetrack in Portland, which at least had some sort of infrastructure, everything in Bertram Park had to be built from scratch. In a space barely big enough to fit both stages, which made things more cacophonous when both of them were in action at the same time. There was a huge branch hanging over the top of the stage and a four-foot spigot right in front of the stage, and we recommended that they bring in a plumber to cut the spigot off at ground level because it would take a hot minute for the fans to break it off. They didn't. The fans snapped it during the first set, and the pristine grass soon became a mud pit. Fans were pelting the stage with clumps of sod, covering all the band equipment with it, and forcing the musicians to be on their toes or get hit. Tom Araya, Slayer's frontman, got hit right in the face with a piece of sod, stopped playing, and wouldn't start again until it stopped. Slipknot had that large scrim that hung in front of the stage, and fans in the pit bombarded the scrim before the band started, and then it was like a wall of mud heaved at the band when the scrim dropped. Later on, they washed the scrim, but let it dry in the sun, and it shrunk and never fell correctly for the rest of the tour. 
Slipknot had hired pyrotechnicians to design and run pyrotechnics for the show, though they couldn't do it in Portland because they didn't get permits in time. The team doing it had experience in the movie industry, but this was their first concert tour. I was standing by the back of the field when they did the first round of fire cannons, and it looked out of proportion for the size of the stage. There was only supposed to be one flash, and the band started to move forward after the first one. Then a second one boomed, spitting out fire from the side of the stage for an even longer duration. When the pyro finally stopped, I could see that the stage side fills were smoldering, but fortunately the huge branch hadn't gone up in flames. The crew had broken out the fire extinguishers, and as I rushed to the stage, I heard Corey Taylor talking to the crowd. You never know if you're going to live or die at one of our shows, he told them. Once on the stage, I got into a shouting match with the pyrotech, at one point screaming so loud that we distracted the band while they played. Off stage, the guy told me this was part of first night adjustments, and that's why the duration was so long. I told him no more pyro until we saw a plan, and the band backed it up. Clown and Danny Nozell, Slipknot's tour manager, were apologetic and angry themselves. Clown came close to being seriously burned up there. Danny was one of the sane voices during the tour, a solid rock amid the turmoil. Zukoski and I met with Clown and Danny on the tour bus, along with Paul Gray, the bassist, and Joey Jordison, the drummer. Clown, Paul, and Joey had founded Slipknot in Des Moines in 1995 and represented the band. Off stage, they were soft-spoken and grateful for the opportunity, and we expressed a similar sentiment. They were never anything but professional and reasonable. On stage, once the jumpsuits and masks went on, it was fucking chaos. Danny was the perfect tour manager for them. When I was a kid, I'd worked a show for the British punk band The Damned that turned into a riot, and their tour manager was the nicest guy ever, in tan slacks and light blue sweater, like your guide for a weekend at an estate. Danny had that same vibe. He never lost his composure and could work out any problem. Without someone like Danny, the tour would have devolved into an even lower level of hell. After our show, Bertram Park looked like a post-nuclear scene out of Terminator 2. The entire field was destroyed and the stage was charred, smoldering, and completely caked with mud. We left our mark here, bro, Sean said as we looked at the damage. I laughed but knew how close we had come to disaster. My greatest fear was that someone would die at one of our shows because of something stupid that we did. I had reoccurring nightmares about it in the weeks leading up to the tour. Zukoski's reoccurring nightmare was that no customers showed up. His wife would sometimes find him sleepwalking, looking out the bedroom window and asking where all the people were. The pyro mishap shook me, and I began to doubt that we could make it through the tour without a major calamity. I checked with the EMS workers to see if anyone got hurt, but there was nothing major. Metal shows usually didn't have serious injuries, the fans are big and experienced moshers, and it's like a sport for them. Punk and pop shows were the worst, the EMTs told me because the fans are young and many times it's their first concert and they jump into the pit and get the shit kicked out of them. We had to leave Kansas right away to get the rest of the way across the country to Giant Stadium to a show that was the biggest landmine of all. I kept getting asked if I was excited about the show and the answer was, I had the same excitement as before an invasive medical procedure. We set up our main stage in the parking lot and the second stage bands would play out there 
When the bands on that stage finished, the main stage bands would start inside the stadium, with Metallica closing the show. At one point, about three in the morning the night before the show, Betsy and I were standing on the stage, and we were the only ones in the entire stadium. Can you believe we did this thing? I said, putting my arms around her. Clown and Naomi soon joined us there, and we all took it in for a while. The general consensus was, how the fuck did this happen? It was the sublime moment of the tour for me, and I should have gone home right after, because it all went to shit from there. There was no tattooing at the show, even though tattooing was legal in New Jersey and we didn't even set up the festival village. We were told there would be no way to secure the tents on the concrete, so we couldn't set it up in the parking lot, though we saw giant slabs and barrels for that exact purpose all around the facility. We put some of our tents in the spiral staircase abutting the stadium, but when that didn't work, we shelved the whole village. At lunch, I was approached by two union guys who told me I had to sign a release and pay a fee to do any filming, even for archival footage. They had seen Fran filming some earlier second stage bands on his camcorder and said I needed to pay them $1,000 to be able to use it. I told them that no one on my crew would do any filming and I'd have Fran delete the footage he took. But they wouldn't let it go and followed me when I walked away, literally fast walk chasing me down the concourse trying to get me to cough up a grand. Yeah, they can stick to you like that, Zukoski said when I told him the story about the union guys. It was Zukoski's birthday and we took some time alone to plan and reflect. On this day, he said, you and me, we put on the biggest show in the world. We'll always have this, Scott. From there, I went on stage to introduce a band passing many of the agents, managers, promoters, and record execs who'd put up roadblocks and who continued to hurt our chances for success. I want to thank all of you motherfuckers for coming out today and making Tattoo the Earth possible. You made this happen, I told the crowd. And to those of you who tried to stop us, many of whom are here today, I want to tell you sincerely to go fuck yourselves. Everybody couldn't help but stick their claws into Tattoo the Earth, and they sucked as much from us as they could. When we did the final settlement after the show, John Shear, the promoter, told us that 500 Coal Chamber fans came to the box office asking for refunds because the band had canceled, and he was deducting it from our take. We were never going to make a lot of money on the giant stadium show and didn't care because of the prestige it afforded us. But now we weren't making anything, and there was nothing we could do about it. They charged me for the parking, so I was actually $25 in the hole for the honor of playing there. We did the financial settlement in the bowels of the stadium in a room that looked like a bank with teller windows. And as Zukoski and I were walking back to the stage, we saw and heard some bikers coming toward the back gate. These gates are typically impenetrable, but the bikers didn't even have to slow down as the gates opened for them. They were there for Booth. Something about him not having given them a heads up about the show and being disrespectful. Booth is a huge guy, but one of the bikers had him off the ground against a wall backstage, poking him in the chest. Zukoski and I just walked by. This was Booth's business, and it shook him pretty bad. Unlike in Germany, Metallica did not allow me or anyone on the tour to watch them. Once Slipknot finished their set, they cleared the stage and no one was allowed on when Metallica played. I could hear them playing while I hung out near the buses and got drunk with some of the bands. It seemed a fitting way for the show to end. But we got what we wanted from the show and it was a dream come true for many of our bands, so I considered it successful. 
The next stop was an amphitheater in Scranton, and that was a breeze compared to the first three shows because we didn't have to build it from scratch. On the road, it hit me what we'd lost when Clear Channel pulled their shows. Not only were we missing major markets, including the entire Southeast, but we were struggling in some of the markets we had left. Ticket sales were weak, and we were struggling with the challenges presented by alternate venues. Venues like Suffolk Downs Horse Racetrack, known in racing circles as Suffering Downs, was used as the location for our show in Boston. It was my hometown show, and I was actually looking forward to it. Mark Sokol, the local production manager, was an early advocate for the project. He worked for the promoter Mass Concerts, and I'd first met him at a show at the Palladium in Worcester. He'd been sitting at a table outside the venue checking in the bands for a festival, and I gave him a promo card and we started talking. He loved the idea and had some good advice and had pumped up Tattoo the Earth to his boss at Mass Concerts. Now they were presenting our show in Boston. I was excited to see Mark when I crawled out of the bus for breakfast, but he had already gotten into a fight with our tour manager, Ronnie, over the catering, and both of them were bent out of shape. It was the usual bullshit between touring veterans who get off on the wrong foot. But fuck, man. Anytime I'd imagine an aspect of the tour beforehand, the reality invariably ended up being the exact opposite. I envisioned Ronnie and Mark as buddies and hanging out, and now they only talk to each other through intermediaries. The thing that set them off was that breakfast was late, and nothing pisses off a crew like late meals. Typically, the promoter takes care of the catering, but Zukoski had seen an opportunity to make some extra money and told the promoters to give us whatever they were going to pay a caterer and that we could handle it. We were five shows into the tour and that decision was already haunting us. Out back, Jack, the caterer he hired, had done the warp tour, but Jack had failed to mention that he'd also gotten thrown off it. Catering had been provided in Portland, so Kansas was the first show Outback Jack would cater, and they were late, claiming that a vehicle had broken down. They blew breakfast, and then barely had it together for lunch and dinner. We cut Outback Jack some slack because they had travel issues, but the food for the next show was mediocre and consisted of hamburgers, hot dogs, beans, and buns. Naomi, who was vegan, was reduced to eating bean sandwiches. The Jack of Outback Jack was haggard and apologetic, but that didn't assuage the bands and crew who were rightfully angry about it. I was out there eating the same crap and felt the same way. So it was not surprising that catering had caused the kerfuffle between Ronnie and Mark. No one knew why breakfast was half set up, there was no coffee which was causing a full-on panic, and two of the women who worked catering were missing. The mystery was solved when Naomi went to take a shower and the door was locked. She banged on the door and when it finally opened, she saw that the two caterers were having sex in the shower room. Naomi told them the crew was freaking out and to get back to work. We'll get around to it, one of them told Naomi and closed the door. I was losing patience with Outback Jack. As had been the case in Portland, our show was a local hard rock radio station's annual concert event. Boston's WAAF, and barring weather or catastrophe, was almost a guaranteed success since the station had promoted the living shit out of it. It was a beautiful day, and the setup of the stages and village were the best they'd been. It was just how I always envisioned Tattoo the Earth, except that we couldn't tattoo. The same hepatitis scare that had once inspired the ban on tattooing in New York had done the same in Massachusetts, and though it looked like the law was starting to crack, the only tattooing allowed was with henna. 
I'd been up front with the tattoo artists from the beginning that things were going to be fucked up at times and had told them when those times were most likely to occur. Sean was with the program. He knew what was going on behind the scenes, as was Bernie. But Booth was uptight. He was already on edge because his set designs hadn't worked out and his run-in with the bikers at Giant Stadium had only made things worse. Booth felt that tattooing was like a side note for us and that the art form and the artists weren't being treated with respect, but he was alone in feeling that way. For the other artists, if they had to sit out in New Jersey and Boston for reasons beyond our control, then that was cool, just part of the journey. We were all in uncharted territory and felt like explorers, especially Philip Liu, who was completely open to the experience. Philip had grown up traveling the world with his parents, Felix and Loretta, both tattooists and painters, and his three siblings. They were a nomadic, tattooing, hippie family. Philip began tattooing professionally when he was 10 and did his own traveling to study with the great tattoo masters in Asia, Europe, and the U.S., Maybe he was traveled out, given that now he rarely left Switzerland, where his shop was located. The family had settled in Lausanne in the 80s and named their studio the Luz Family's Family Iron. Philip had long black hair that he sometimes put up into a kind of a bun, kept in place with what looked like big ivory knitting needles. He had fine, exotic features and was razor thin. He had a tribal tattoo that went up his Adam's apple to the base of his chin and wore a necklace made from teeth his father had lost after a bout of mouth cancer. His father was still ailing, which was one of the reasons Philip was only doing half the tour. Philip and Tatine added a calm to the storm we were in. Since Philip couldn't tattoo at the Boston show, he tattooed me a little, jumping in on Bernie's sleeve. He and Bernie were friends, and he knew Bernie would first get angry when he saw that his work had been fucked with, and then grudgingly accept it when he learned that Philip was the culprit. That night, Philip fixed the tattoo that Betsy had on her shoulder. She had gotten her first tattoo when we first met, and before I knew what was what with tattooing. She wanted a variation on a son she saw on the cover of a King Crimson album, but it turned out badly and was indecipherable. Sean tried to fix it, but Betsy didn't want to make it any larger, and he could only do so much. Philip convinced her to make it bigger, and the finished result was a mind-blower. A sort of sun, sunflower design. She finally loved it, and we were just in awe of his talent. Despite the distractions, Boston was a strong show for us, but not for the Revere neighborhood surrounding the racetrack. The day after our show, the mayor called an emergency meeting and effectively banned Tattoo the Earth and Slipknot for life. Turns out that we were so loud and the banter and cursing between songs so raunchy that citizens on the outskirts of Revere were driving around looking for the source of the party so they could shut it down. Those closest to the track took to the phones and showed up at the box office. We'd also trashed the shrubbery and flowers in the center of the infield, among other sundry infractions. There had only been a handful of concerts at Suffolk Downs prior to ours. The Beatles in 1966, the Jackson 5 in 1973, and just a few days before us in the first concerts in 27 years, the Guinness Fleet Festival and Warp Tour. All was okay until Slipknot and the rest of Tattoo the Earth were permanently exiled from what would end up being one of our best venues. The next show in Cleveland was the last straw for Outback Jack. They could just not get it together. Zukowski was back in New Jersey so it was up to me to fire Jack and his wife. 
After listening to our overwhelming list of grievances, they had no choice but to walk off hand-in-hand into the dark. Catering would be hit or miss for the rest of the tour, mostly miss. In addition to being a massive pain in the ass, it was terrible for morale, hurt us financially, and the anxious uncertainty about whether we'd be fed and whether the food would be edible hung over every show. In the meantime, I bought a few barbecue grills and ordered pizzas every night to keep Slayer happy.